From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 423, for the week of March 29th, 2015. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by my good friends Michael Bowling, Nancy Johnson, and Mary Jo Malata-Willie. And in this segment, Michael talks about Kay Kamen and how he made Mickey Mouse a merchandise superstar. Michael, this is... Uh, related to a Walt Disney Family Museum presentation? It is. Right. So now Disney fans look forward to a new Disney merch, to new Disney merchandise almost as much as they look forward to the opening of a new attraction or a new animated film. So I imagine most of us collect some sort of Disney memorabilia. So I thought I'd go around the, the state and, and maybe find out what's maybe something What's the something that you all collect? So, that you, so Mary Jo, is there a Disney memorabilia that you like to collect? I, I'm trying to think. Disney books, books about Disneyland okay. and the history of Disneyland. I like to collect them, and the trivia, yes. like um, the unseen books, seen and unseen. I love those kind of mm-hmm. books. Okay, Nancy, how about you? Oh my gosh, what haven't I collected? Choose one. Choose life? one, Nancy, one. <laughs> I know. Well, that was kind of my point. Um, right now, I think it's cool mugs. Yeah. But not a lot. The, we have a- It has to be really special. <laughs> okay, and Tom, That's how about you? Uh, lately, yeah. it's been baseball caps. I've, I've been collecting baseball caps. Um in the past, I've collected shot glasses. Don't do that anymore. Um, when I was a kid, I collected pennants. So I have like Disneyland pennants that go back to the like the seventies and eighties. So yeah, it I like. <laughs> yeah, I like to collect dis- vintage Disneyland like art and uh, and definitely history books and Sorcerer Mickey items, things like that. Well. As Tom said recently at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, Tom Tumbush presented the story of how Kay Kamen made Mickey Mouse a merchandise superstar. Now, Tom Tumbush writes and publishes the Tomart Price Guides for Collectibles, and he's currently writing a book series on the merchandise history of Disneyana. And the story of how Kay Kamen and Walt and Roy Disney reinvented the industry of licensed character merchandising is actually fascinating. And has affected all of us Disney fans, even if you're not a collector. And we'll talk about how he did that, even if you're not a collector, how you've been affected. Now, Tom Tombush began the presentation by taking us back to the era of the 1920s when Walt and Roy Disney were establishing the Disney Brothers studio. So uh, we're going to do a little quiz here, gang. So I hope you're still awake. So, why is November 11th, 1928 important to us all? It's Mickey's birthday, right? Wouldn't that be that Mickey, that's right. Mickey Mouse's first cartoon? That's right. Yeah, you got it. Tom and Mary Jo. Steamboat Willie premiered at the Colony Theater, which is now called the Broadway Theater, and it's across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City. 
Steamboat Willie was a huge sensation, and everyone wanted Mickey Mouse. Now, in 1928, what do you think was the most sought-after household product? 1928, household product. I have to go back to Carousel of Progress. And... <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Isn't it? <laughs> well, household no, product. You remember that this is a household maybe? product. That was what a lot of people guessed at the museum. But but it was actually the Kelvinator refrigerator, which oh, wow. first went into really? production in 1926. Because up until then, people had ice boxes and had to have, you know, oh. these huge bricks of blocks of ice delivered to their homes. So Kelvinators were heavily in demand and shaped the world into which Mickey Mouse was born. You also have to keep in mind that at this time, there were no large downtown shopping areas. Most people shopped at their local neighborhood stores. There was also no television and no internet. And the population of the United States in 1928 was 120.5 million people. So Mickey Mouse came into a very different time and place from today. And this affected how Mickey Mouse was merchandised. Now, what is the importance of October 29th, 1929? Anyone know? Got to think Mickey back Mouse, in history. the first time in color? Oh, the stock market now crash. The, exactly. This is Black Friday. The stock market crash in the day the Roaring Twenties ended, which made selling anything, especially a new cartoon character, difficult, and it changed the way people spent their money. So as I said, Steamboat Willie was a sensation, and everyone wanted to merchandise him, but Walt turned them all down. When the Disney Studio shorts were distributed overseas, and several toy manufacturers in England, Spain, and Germany began making unauthorized toys and other items, Walt and Roy realized they had a problem. So in the fall of 1929, a man approached Walt Disney in a New York hotel lobby and offered $300 to use Mickey's image on school tablets. And this was the first deal for Mickey Mouse merchandise. Walt neglected to record this fellow's name in his daily diary, so it has been lost to time. But Walt and Roy recognized that everyone wanted Mickey Mouse merchandise, but they were focused on producing Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphony cartoon shorts and didn't want to get into producing merchandise. So Roy Disney went to King Feature Syndicate, who produced comics and distributed the Mickey Mouse comic strip um, for advice, and he came in contact with the George Berg Orgfeld Company. And discussions with Borgfeldt resulted in the signing of a three-year contract on February 5th, 1930, for the company to act as the licensing agent for Disney merchandise. Now, the George Borgfeldt company manufactured items such as porcelain and nested dolls and boxes and knickknacks for the large five and ten cent store chains like Woolworth, Kresge, Grant, and C.G. Murphy and for the independent neighborhood mom-and-pop confectionery stores. And Borgfeldt produced bisque, wooden figures, and other novelties for many popular newspaper comic characters like Little Nemo, Little Orphan Annie, and even the live-action um, films Our Gang and The Little Rascals. And they also made the Cupid dolls that were based on a Sunday comic strip. Now, Disney was still free to license products on its own, 
So known deals are made with Bullock's Wilshire Department Store for exclusive marionettes and toys, and Charlotte Clark to make Mickey and Minnie Mouse dolls, Bebo and Lang to publish the first Mickey Mouse book, and an operation to manage the Saturday Theater Mickey Mouse Clubs. Now, almost immediately, there were problems between the Disney Brothers and Borgfeldt. Mickey Mouse went through several design changes during the run of the contract between the two companies, so getting merchandise to keep pace with the quality improvements the studio was making with its character was an issue. We have to remember, these were the days before FedEx and Airmail, so the studio had to send updated model sheets and detailed comments to Borgfeldt by train to New York. Borgfeldt would then forward them on by ship to the appropriate overseas manufacturer who would produce product sketches and then send them back by ship to Borgfeldt who would send them on by train to the Disney Studios. So this was a very long and involved process. So as a result of this, no Mickey Mouse merchandise was produced by Borgfeldt in 1930. Adding to Roy Disney's frustration, Borgfeldt pretty much ignored Roy's directives for making improvements. Borgfeldt was a larger worldwide operation and treated Disney the same as other newspaper comic strip characters for which they produced merchandise. And this attitude resulted in a very lackluster performance on behalf of Disney. Royalties from licensed sales of Disney merchandise only reached a peak of approximately $300,000 in the last year of the Borgfeldt licensing deal. The list of problems between Disney and Borkfeldt grew by the time the three-year contract was due for renewal. So Borkfeldt's relationship with Disney changed when their licensing agreement ended in January 1933. They could no longer grant licenses independently of Disney. Instead, Borkfeldt became a licensee to continue to sell products they developed for their own company catalog. World War II shut down all business Borgfeldt was doing with Japanese and German companies. They tried to recover in the post-war period, but eventually closed their doors in 1952 and declared bankruptcy as retailers began to purchase products directly from manufacturers. The George Borgfeldt Company was acquired by B. Shackman and Company for $250. Now, 40-year-old Herman K. Kamen happened to see a Mickey Mouse cartoon whilst attending a movie in his hometown of Kansas City, and he couldn't get the little character out of his mind, and was confident Mickey Mouse held tremendous merchandise potential. The ideas for merchandising Mickey began to grow in his brain, so the next morning he called the Disney studio and spoke to Walt Disney. Walt expressed interest and invited Kamen to stop by the studio the next time he was in Hollywood. So Kay came and purchased a ticket and boarded a train for Los Angeles the next day. Prior to this, Cayman was in a business partnership with Streeter Blair, and together they owned the Cayman Blair Advertising and Public Relations Company. Um, the company represented Hal Roach's R Gang in the early 1930s and had successfully built a national sales promotion campaign franchised to local men's clothing stores catering to the young boys' market. Two days after boarding the train, Kay Kamen arrived at the Hyperion Avenue studio and asked to see Walt Disney. Now, Kamen was always impeccably dressed. He had a commanding presence, 
communicated with precise language, and possessed an easy congeniality. Walt quickly found Roy, and they listened to Cayman's presentation on the potential he envisioned for upscale Mickey Mouse toys, games, and clothing. He demonstrated the approach he would use to handpick manufacturers he wanted to produce Mickey merchandise. Cayman's plan included tight quality control using Disney-trained artists to design and oversee the production of all merchandise, packaging, and point-of-purchase advertising materials. Cayman believed Mickey would spur the sales of clothing and other upscale department items, and he wanted to project Mickey Mouse as a loving friend to children and a character they could look to as a role model in the way they dressed, the watches they wore, the decorations in their rooms, and the toys they chose for play. A new role was waiting for Mickey in more upscale merchandise, virtually anything that would appeal to a child. Now, Cayman closed his ideas on how he would support his licenses all the way to the newly emerging department store buyers. In that meeting, Kay Cayman offered Walton Roy Disney with solutions to all the problems they were experiencing with Borgfeld. Cayman's ideas proved to be so effective, he reinvented the industry of licensed character merchandising over the next two years. Cayman left the meeting with an assignment to develop his concepts in greater detail and report back to Walton Roy when he was ready. After a few subsequent meetings, Cayman signed his first contract with the Disneys on July 1, 1932, making him Disney's personal representative for all merchandising. This meant Borgfeldt now reported to Cayman. The agreement called for Disney to receive 60% of the first $100,000 in royalty income and Cayman 40%. Thereafter, the licensing income would be split 50-50. Kay Cayman met with his business partner, Streeter Blair, and told Blair to buy him out because he was going to work for Mickey Mouse. Now, Blair Enterprises is still in business today, primarily promoting grocery store chains. Look for their name on grocery store coupons or on grocery store newspaper inserts. One of the first things Cayman did after signing the original contract was to cancel the George Bergfeld Corporation's exclusive licensing agreement to produce and distribute Disney character merchandise. He also replaced Disney's British licensing representative, William Banks Levy, who had moved over to the film division, with his nephew George Cayman, who headed the British and Foreign Offices of K. Cayman Limited. Both Levy and the Borgfeld Corporation, however, continue to produce selectively as Disney licensees. George Cayman improved licensee sales throughout Europe and published merchandise catalogs similar to those being done in the United States. World War II ended his Disney operations, but there was a post-war operation which included merchandise up through Cinderella. Meanwhile, K. Cayman Limited forged ahead with a new higher standard of artwork and design applied to Disney licensed products. Cayman set new licensing standards on designs, quality of materials, and fees. Publishers of printed materials and music pay 10% of gross sales, whilst producers of apparel, toys, games, and other products pay 5%. 
There was an advance and an extra charge for artwork, models, and other supervision of Disney-trained artists. Within six months, Kay Kamen built an organization within the retail buying world of New York and more than doubled Borgfeldt's best year. By the end of 1935, the retail sales of Disney merchandise would exceed $35 million. The first Mickey Mouse t-shirts, watches, and electric trains were licensed, products Borgfeldt would never think of. Kay Kamen was one of the best salesmen who ever lived. He and Mickey Mouse were suited for each other. Kamen was based in New York, but was seldom in his office. His New York office was run by Ruth Ivener, who had worked for Kamen prior to the Disney licensing deal. Kay Kamen was a generous man to all who did what was expected of them. His tips to service people he encountered in his travels were legendary. He paid good wages in return for good work. Every effort was made to recruit top sales representatives, service people, and artists. Kamen financed his staff, travel, and overhead with his share of the licensing income. It turned out to be a profitable deal for both Kamen and the Disneys. Kamen made Mickey Mouse a big star in department stores. Part of Kamen's plan was to make Mickey Mouse a partner to Santa Claus. When a child came to visit Santa in a store participating in the annual K. Kamen Christmas promotion, Santa gave the child a Mickey or Minnie button, mask, big little book, or other Mickey premium exclusively prepared or imprinted for the participating store. He also made available static and animated displays, decorations, and countertop signs featuring Disney characters for toy department use. Cayman's plan to make Mickey Santa's new partner in promoting Christmas had four key elements towards the goal of selling more licenses for Mickey products. First, he designed Toyland promotional tools around Mickey and Santa. Everything from paper toys and Santa giveaways to store banners and displays. Second, he wrote and published comprehensive Christmas promotion manuals, the first in the industry, for toy department managers explaining how to incorporate Mickey into their Toyland plans. Third, came and developed a joint Disney licensed manufacturer's merchandise catalog for department store buyers to showcase nearly all Disney character merchandise with contact information for licensee sales representatives. The fourth element was Cayman himself. There wasn't a decent-sized toy department buyer in the country he didn't know and visit personally at least twice a year. Cayman had a deep fear of flying, so he traveled by his own private railway car. During his visits, Cayman gave free samples of the latest Mickey toys and provided sound advice on the coming season. The Chicago office of K. Cayman Incorporated was a suite at the Palmer House. $100 Christmas tips to bellboys at the Palmer House and other hotels around the country were standard. Prospective licensees were always impressed by how well Kay Kamen was known in hotels and restaurants. Prospective clients were usually eager to hear Kay Kamen's pitch. Here's how one of Kay Kamen's merchandise artists, Lou Lipsby, described a typical Kay Kamen pitch. Kay would usually sit comfortably with the prospect in conversation, 
He would turn the discussion toward business by talking about Walt Disney and his progress in developing the animated cartoon into short comic stories where you actually cared about the characters. He would talk about how Walt pioneered sound, color, and other techniques to make his characters more lifelike. He would expand on these thoughts by using a current Mickey cartoon that was playing in the city. Cayman would arrange a private screening as part of his pitch, or make sure the, pros the prospects saw the cartoon in advance. He wanted the potential licensees to reassure themselves the current characters would be ones with which they would want their products associated. Kay would briefly synopsize the cartoon, stressing certain key scenes as the story unfolded. He then used Mickey's character traits and the story clips and translated them into product concepts for the prospect's current line or some new products within the company's production capabilities. Whilst the prospects gave thought to the product ideas presented, Kay related how Mickey Mouse cartoons remind children and parents about Mickey products they've seen. Then Kay would remind the prospect of how the animation the upbeat stories, the action and humor of the gag sequences created fascination with the characters and a positive response overall. He would stress how these elements, found in every Disney picture, created a joyful merchandise opportunity unique to Mickey Mouse. He usually concluded by saying something like, Imagine seeing this wonderful character on the screen and then walking into a store and picking up one of these. He would then show a layout drawing and several illustrations depicting a product concept he had described earlier. He would describe each one in detail, often referring back to Mickey's character traits or cartoon segments he had stressed earlier. By this time, prospects would be waiting to hear what this was going to cost. First, Cayman would present the sales estimate he felt the prospect could realize if he incorporated Mickey and or other Disney characters into the presented product ideas. Then he added the standard licensing fee at 5% or 10% in the case of music or publishing of sales with an advance of a certain dollar amount based on a percentage of his sales projection, plus other standard terms of the contract. As part of the deal, he'd explain how his company would design the point-of-purchase materials and share in advertising and promotional material costs. Kay would complete his presentation with examples of the Mickey Mouse success story, such as the Ingersoll Watch Company or a Lionel Train Company being saved from bankruptcy, or a story closer to the customer's line of business. In the end, the prospect was usually swayed by two major factors. One, his business was going to be associated with Walt Disney, his characters and studio. And two, he was going to have a sales volume greater than ever before by tying his manufacturing capabilities to the selling power of Mickey Mouse. When licensees added Mickey Mouse and Kay came into their sales staff, they usually got results. The Kay came in merchandise catalogs for 1934, 1935, 1936 and 7, and 1938-39 show amazing licensee retention. Christmas of 1934 found Mickey Mouse, the theme character in 35 major department store Toylands. Over 50 featured Mickey in 1935. 
This resulted in $25 million in retail sales with a royalty income of $2.5 million during the worst two years of the Depression, split 50-50 between K. Kamen and Walt Disney Productions. By this time, Walt knew Kay had what it took to handle this important income-generating business. He gave Kay Kamen carte blanche on all decisions. Kamen and his methods not only literally saved the Disney company with his much-needed influx of cash, he helped the economy by creating hundreds of jobs and saved at least three companies from going bankrupt. Planning for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs began in 1934, but preliminary 1935 sales royalty income, based on over $35 million in retail sales, was the news Walt Disney needed to put his first animated feature into production. Walt and Roy Disney were resourceful film producers and would likely have found another way to produce Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs without the tremendous contribution of Kay Kamen, but it wouldn't have been completed in 1937. Anticipating the great appeal of the film, Kay Kamen granted some 70 licenses to corporations for the production of a variety of goods with the Snow White stamp clothing, food, toys, books, cutlery, phonograph records, and a host of others. Large department stores in nearly every major city put together promotions of toys, books, and clothing in ground-level display windows. Companies were eager to get in on the action. The business journal's Dunn's Review concluded in April 1938 that the symbiotic process, the picture promoted the sales of goods, the likenesses on the merchandise enhanced the popularity of the picture, had made Snow White a dramatic example of a new force in merchandising. Of course, the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had a profound impact on the Disney studio, enabled them to construct the Burbank studio, and set the studio on a new course of producing innovative feature-length films. Walt Disney Productions may look very different if it had not been for the merchandising success and profits Kay Kamen brought to the company. Most of the licensees signed by 1938 stayed with Disney and Kay Kamen until the onset of World War II. The war effort resulted in the rationing of materials used to make toys and severely restricted what Disney products could still be manufactured. Paper, paperboard, wood, and ceramics were all that was available. Unable to get the materials needed for production forced the majority of Disney licensees to not renew their rights to produce character merchandise. Cayman, however, kept busy with those licensees who had something they could produce and sell in a wartime economy. He also helped to develop and promote the use of Disney character insignias for various branches of the armed services and his airplane nose art. The last great merchandise campaign came and launched was for Cinderella, released in 1950. Cayman and his wife Kate had traveled to Paris to talk business with Armand Bigel, Vice President of Merchandising for Disney in Europe. Ruth Ivener, Vice President of K. Kamen Limited, received Kamen's last letter in, New York, in the New York office, 
postmarked October 26th, 1949, and mailed from Paris. It contained a flurry of business details and jokes about Cayman's fear of flying, but the tone was upbeat, and generally Cayman was looking forward to the future. Tragically, at age 56, Kay Cayman and his wife Kate died in an Air France crash over the Azores. After his death, the Kay Cayman organization was transformed over to Walt Disney Productions. The remarkable Kay Cayman era in Disney merchandising can easily be described as one of the great success stories of the 20th century. Most of the early merchandise currently collected as Disneyana is directly linked to the genius of Kay Cayman's vision and, of course, that of Walt Disney. Today, while the Disney name is known around the world, the name of Kay Cayman should also be remembered because of his contribution to the world of Disneyana and the early financial success of the Walt Disney Studio. And thanks to Kay Kamen, we have Nancy's Shopping 101 segments on the Dis Unplugged <laughs> Disneyland podcast. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> if, if you would like to read more about Disney merchandise of the 1930s, I highly recommend Tom, Tom Bush's book, Tomarch Merchandise History of Disneyana, Disneyana Merchandise of the 1930s. The book is available through online book retailers and at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Additionally, you can view a good collection of Disney merchandise from this era at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. I love these segments. And even if you're not a collector, we have Kay Kamen to thank possibly for all the Disney films we love and for Disneyland, because the Disney studio may not have survived the depression without Kay Kamen and um, his merchandising of Mickey Mouse. Right. Excellent. All right. That is going to do it for this segment of the Des Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.